I mentioned uh, last Sunday, the last Sunday that we were at our old location, that I was sitting, I was sitting right behind here, right about there, uh, on a, I forget what night it was, and I was cutting gels for the lights and trying to get the lights focused, and I was here all by myself and just kind of looking out over these empty chairs, and I just had this, all of a sudden the, the faces started showing up in my mind's eye, and this vision of these, uh, these seats all filled, and now here it is, real and true, you're here, and this makes it so much more real. It's been a a long journey in, just in the last three months, and especially in the last month, to get to this point. But here we are. And <clears throat> I think one of my best Sundays in the last 10 years of the effect was last Sunday. Last Sunday was our moving Sunday. And so what we did was, we uh, after the uh, the service was over, anybody who could stay, anybody who wanted to stay, did stay. And they stayed, and they started packing, and they started loading the truck, and we moved things out, and when we got it done, we moved over here, we started unpacking the truck, and it was a little bit of, you know, barely organized chaos as we were running around and doing these things, but there was, I don't know, 25 people who stayed, and they were all eager and laughing and happy and and just moving about, and then afterwards there was pizza, and we're sitting out here eating pizza and, and just hanging out. It was just a wonderful Sunday. It was all of our community that we have developed over the years on display. It was people who would just love to be connected and didn't mind throwing in and helping and just working and laughing and and, uh, doing all the things that we did. The calls and the texts that I've received over the last couple of weeks just encouraging me personally and those who knew I was a little bit ill, you know, just checking to see if I was okay. That that means so much. I can't tell you what that means. But it also talks about the community that we have here, the connection that we feel here, that there's something that runs deeper than than just the institution of church. This last week also we had people who were coming and working, and you know I've still got uh, visions of John. Where'd John go? There he is. John, we we call him John the Baptist lovingly here. John repotting these trees out here, you know, and, and just sweating and trying to take the trees out of the old pots. And finally, I just looked at him and said, just go ahead and break the pot. You should have seen how grateful he was. Like, I can break the pot, break the pot, break the pot. And, but uh, wearing himself out doing that and then coming back with Doug and um, just moving things that had to go into storage and moving the storage around and doing it willingly and cheerfully. And we got uh, Jim, who was climbing up on a 20-foot extension ladder and changing bulbs on the side of the building. And uh, then Friday morning, our ladies showed up, and it was Marion, and it was Anne and, and, and Jeanette, and they were dealing with all of the decor out here. And they went shopping. They were so excited to go shopping. They got to go shopping, and they bought stuff and uh, and, and just... Just really decked out our place there and kind of made it feng shui, you know, and so that it flowed and and all these things are happening. And it was just so great to see the meetings that started showing up because we actually started Tuesday was our our first full day here. So all of our twelve step meetings have been showing up and of course we've been here mostly working and so the meetings show up and they're walking around and they're so excited about the space and oh this is great and and uh, just taking to their tasks and, and their responsibilities and commitments. You know, just just with with eagerness and enthusiasm. Um, there's been so much going on here. 
that it has again reinforced in me what we've built over the years that is not contained in a building has nothing to do with the building. It has to do with us. You know, We are the ones who bring the consecration, the sanctification with us wherever we go. And then being sick this week, I actually learned to lean on a few people and, and they let me. And, and that was wonderful as well to know that I could call somebody and have them come down and, and just kind of, uh, you know, let some of that responsibility and some of that work go. The depth of our community has definitely been on the display these last few weeks, and it's been wonderful to see and just so gratifying to me. Last Sunday, we talked about consecration. We talked about the consecration of this new space as we move into it. As we have consecrated our old space, we talked about how people always walked in and said they felt a, a, a feeling of connection, of warmth, of the spirit as they walked in. And we talked about how that was about us, not about anything ritualized, not about anything that was, that was formal, but it was about us actually moving into a space and being completely transparent, being completely real and vulnerable with each other. Not just the formal worship and prayer, although that's a part of it. And we can be completely vulnerable and transparent in our worship and prayer. But if we're not transparent in every other aspect of our lives, in every other aspect of our relationships, then how in the world can we say that our formal worship and our prayer time is in any way meaningful? If it's not informing the rest of our lives, if it's not moving out and filling the rest of our lives. Jesus was always so adamant, specific, about getting people to stop thinking religiously and to start thinking relationally, to realize that the forms of religion, the forms of worship, are only there to serve relationship and for no other reason. And if they aren't doing that, then you might as well throw them out. And he was so adamant about this. Forget about the, 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 the forms of worship, the forms of religion, unless they are completely bringing out all of the connection and transparency in our relationships. He said that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Religion was made for our relationships and not our relationships for our religion. It's so important for us to understand this. And this is already taking place here. I've seen it here, especially in this last couple of weeks. You know, We're all here on Friday. So many people working. Pastor Pondo is pressure washing the trash cans out in the, <laughs> in the uh, parking lot. And everybody is running around. This is part of it. This is how it works. The consecration takes place in all of these connection points. All of these relationships all of these points in our lives at which we show up to make someone else's life easier. We show up because we wouldn't want to be anywhere else because it's so much fun to be in relationship, to be in connection with each other. This is what consecrates a space, not the space itself. And so we talked about that last week. And we talked about it all being about the shepherd consciousness of Moses. You remember that? Here's Moses after 40 years as a, as a shepherd in the backwater of the Midian before he comes across the burning bush. 
And think about it. To be a shepherd, especially in the ancient world, especially as far out into the wilderness as he was, to spend all that time alone with your flock, to spend all that time alone in the wilderness, what would that do to your consciousness? What would that do to your psyche? How would that quiet you down? If you went literally weeks and months without any other human contact, alone, in those desolate places, but still needing to be vigilant, still needing to care for your sheep, care for your flocks, how would that change you? Quieting your interior spaces, at the same time making you hyper-vigilant about all the details that you see. And the details are not spectacular. They're just mundane. They're commonplace. They're everyday. But they take on their own significance as you bring your presence to them. That's what the shepherd's consciousness, consciousness is all about. It's about finding the significant in the seemingly insignificant. It's about finding the sacred in the seemingly profane. This is what Moses learned. When he passed that burning bush, it was no big deal, except that he had developed the consciousness to look, to notice, to spend enough time to see that even though the bush was burning, which was not unprecedented in the desert, but it was not being consumed as it was burning. And so he said, let's turn aside and see what this is all about. For Moses not to have just rushed past as he would have in his first 40 years, in his second 40 years, that was the shepherd's consciousness that he had developed. This is what Jesus is trying to get all of us to develop a shepherd's consciousness, an awareness of all these intricate details that we can rush past in, in, in our 60-mile-an-hour rush to our outcomes and to the things that we think we need to do, missing all these sacred details at each step. We will literally walk past our burning bush in the rush to what? Well, to whatever it is, the outcome du jour, right? Whatever it is we're working toward today. But it took that 40 years in the desert. And yes, it was probably, it, it could have been a literal 40 years, we don't know. Most importantly, the number 40 in Hebrew thought is a time of trial and testing into rebirth. That's the significance of 40. That's why you keep seeing it over and over again. Moses' life separated into three sets of 40. The Israelites, 40 years in the desert. Noah, 40 days in the ark. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. 40, 40, 40, over and over and over again. Every time, it's a time of trial and testing into a rebirth. Moses had gone through a time of trial and testing into a rebirth. A rebirth of a man who could now see the significant and the insignificant. Who could now see God's presence in all of the daily details of his life. That was the change. That was the transformation. That's how he was able to see his burning bush and to hear from God and to know the next thing that he was supposed to do. When we can change our focus from the spectacular to the commonplace, when we stop chasing after those things that we think are the peak of where we're supposed to be, and realize that every moment contains that seed of something completely sacred, then we also 
will be transformed. We also will be 40, when you think about it. That 40-ness will be part of our lives as well. We took a broader look at consecration last week, all in the idea of moving from one place to another. But now we're kind of talking about worship as well. So how do we look at worship? Is there a, a deeper way that we can look at worship? Because in the same way that consecration is all up to us, it travels with us, we are God's temple, then the worship travels with us too. It's not about priests, it's not about pastors, it's not about rituals, it's not about any of those things. It's about our participation in the moment that makes it worship. It's us living in real community. It's us living in transparency that is going to make this thing work. So if that's true about consecration, then what about worship? How do we worship in this same way that we're talking about here? that kind of takes the whole thing as Jesus is always doing and turns it back to front so that we can see what really is going on and we can see how our participation makes everything sacred. So if you look at the dictionary for worship, what do you see? Well, it's to honor or to reverence a divine being or a supernatural power. Great! That's one of those definitions that is absolutely true and absolutely unhelpful at the same time. Okay, what does that do for us, right? <clears throat> we need another way to see. We need a way to see this deeper. And Jesus never tells us something directly. You never said, you know, he never gives you the direct answer that you're looking for. He tells us a story, right? He asks us another question to refine the actual question and the search that we're going after. And so the stories are there to illustrate. The stories are there to evoke. The stories are there to lead us into an experience, if we will let them, that will take us someplace where we really need to go. But if we don't know what the words meant to the original followers of Jesus as they were hearing his words and listening to his stories, then we're going to miss the point. And so we need to take what Jesus tells us about worship and move it back into that context, move it back into that original language, move it back into the minds of the original hearers so that we can understand what Jesus was talking about. So let's take a look at John 4. <coughs> oh. This is where he is meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture and there's so much in here. There's so much going on. Let's see if we can break it down a little bit and then get right to the point of, of worshiping in spirit and truth. At John 4, verse 3, Jesus left Judea and went away into the Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. If you look at a map of, of ancient Israel, what you see is they're stacked on top of each other. You've got Judea, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, all in a straight row, right? Now, Samaria was no man's land for any good Jew. Because of the nature of the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews, if you were a really good Jew and you were going from Judea to the Galilee, what you would do would take a 60-mile detour. You would cross the Jordan, go up north, and then come back into the Galilee. That way you didn't have to go through the profane place. But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes straight north from Judea, into Samaria, and into Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, 
near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which would be noon or so on the Hebrew clock. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. This is Jesus breaking all sorts of barriers. And you have to see this about Jesus. It happens throughout the Gospels. Jesus is constantly breaking barriers. He's breaking social barriers. He's breaking theological barriers. And he's breaking ritual barriers. And he does all three in this little passage here. But think about Jesus. No Jewish male would talk with or accept water from a female in public. That wasn't something that they did. And especially not a Samaritan. No self-respecting Jew would have anything to do with a Samaritan. They wouldn't take anything from their hand. They wouldn't sit at table with them. They wouldn't have a discussion with them. For Jesus to be sitting in public, speaking to a Samaritan woman, was breaking half a dozen social barriers right off the bat. And now he's going to move into theological and into ritual barriers as he goes. But this is always Jesus. He touches the leper before he heals him. Do you know how wrong that is from a Jewish point of view? To touch a leper makes you unclean, which means you have to go through all the ritual cleansing and purification process again before you can live back in community. But Jesus doesn't care. He touches, then he heals. He has a relationship. He talks to a person, regardless of their station in life. It doesn't matter if they stand outside the law. Jesus is still just as connected to them. It doesn't matter if they hail from another ethnicity or, God forbid, are a Roman, like the Roman centurion. Not only does he talk to him, he also heals his son, heals his servant. This is Jesus always breaking the barriers because the boundaries there, the, the, the social boundaries, the theological boundaries, the ritual boundaries, again, only exist to further the relationships within the community, to further relationships within the family, within the larger group. And if they're not doing that anymore, then they need to be jettisoned. And here's Jesus trying to get that lesson back to us over and over and over again. We get so caught up in the rules. We get so caught up in the institutions that we create in order to make our lives better, in order to make our relationships and our families better, that they become the end in themselves. And they're no longer serving the purpose that they were intended to serve at the beginning. We lose that. And not only that, then by serving those rules and serving those institutions, we're actually deprecating or actually disintegrating the relationships. And Jesus would not stand for that, ever. His harshest criticism was always for the Pharisees. It was always for the religious authorities who put themselves in that place of defending the status quo, of defending the institution, while letting the people starve, while letting the people remain outside, marginalized, unable to come into community. And at every turn, Jesus is trying to take us back Do you understand why these are here in the first place? 
Your religion is here to serve your relationships. If it's not doing that, get it gone and come back to relationship and then wrap whatever religion you want to around that. It's so important for us to see what he's doing at every turn because Jesus is always on point. Jesus is always going right to the core of what we need to see. And he breaks these barriers shockingly on purpose to try to get those points across. Kind of like a slap across the face. Do you see what's going on here? Do you understand? So the Samaritan woman is shocked at this, of course. She can't believe what she's seeing. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? And Jesus answers and says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But, that, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And of course, she takes it literally and she misses the metaphorical point that he's trying to make here. But that's a, you know, Nicodemus did the same thing. You've got to be born again, Jesus says. How in the world can I crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again? You know, it's so easy for us to literalize and to miss the deeper points. It happens over and over. We're still doing it, of course, today. But Jesus is making this much deeper point, trying to get across to her. And so he says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you have correctly said, you know, you have no, I have no husband. For you have, have, have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, we don't know if she's just trying to distract him and change the subject because she doesn't want to deal with the fact of her, her marital relationships or whether she sincerely wanted to know the answer to a question that has been bothering her from a prophet that she has now found in her presence. But I suppose it really doesn't matter. But it's kind of an interesting thing. you know. He uses his prophetic utterance here to get her attention to break her line of thinking from this overly literal, you know, give me this water so that I don't have to come and draw the water every day, to something deeper. He's changed her focus. Do you see that? Now she realizes I'm talking to a prophet. Now her whole train of thought moves into another direction. And what she asks about is an age-old question between Samaritan and Jews. Who are the Samaritans anyway? Well, in the 8th century B.C., when the northern kingdoms were overrun by Assyria and the populace taken into captivity, they didn't take the entire population. They would take a portion of the population and move them into another region of the empire. And then they would take other populations that were conquered and move them into other regions. 
and thereby they would mix the populations, they would water down any of their ethnicity, water down their, their culture and their rituals, and make them more docile, make it much more difficult for them to rebel against the empire. This is the strategy of most of the ancient Middle Eastern empires. And so this is what Assyria did. They took a portion of the northern kingdom, the Jews, and moved them to Assyria, and they took other peoples and moved them into what is now Samaria, or what was then Samaria. And then that population mixed and interbred together, and the resulting population was by Jesus' time known as the Samaritans. They were a mixed breed. And since they split with Judea at an early portion, they didn't have any of the prophetic literature. They didn't have any of the prophetic tradition. They only went by the first five books of of what is the the Jewish Bible. That's all they had. And then they moved their their place of worship to Mount Gerasim in Judea. I'm sorry, in Samaria. And so they had their temple, a second temple built there on Mount Gerasim. And of course, the Jews had their temple on the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And so here was this fight between the two of them. They had their separate places of worship. They had their separate ideas about what the sacred scriptures were and separate ideas about worship and ritual and so on and so forth. And so this is the question that she's asking of Jesus. She says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, what is he trying to tell her? Once again, he's trying to get her away from the forms, from the ritual, from the mere religion. And he's trying to get her over to a place where she can actually move in this thing called worship in a way that really touches her life, informs everything about her life, about her relationships. The worship and spirit and truth there. In Greek, that's pneuma and aletheia. And it can literally be translated as heart and mind. And sometimes you'll see in commentaries where the idea is heart is the desire or the passion for God. And mind is the proper information about God. So heart and mind. This idea there's a passion, there's a desire, but there's also understanding correctly theologically, who this God is that we're worshiping, without which we cannot do it properly. I don't think that is really deep enough. It's not hitting where Jesus was hitting, because if you take a look from the Aramaic point of view, you have two very different words. Spirit and truth is ruha and serara, worship in spirit and truth. Ruha it's an interesting word because at the same time, and this is the nature of, an, of, a, of the ancient Semitic language like Aramaic, you have many simultaneous meanings. Small vocabulary, lots of simultaneous meanings. Words need to work real hard in, in those ancient languages. Ruha means wind, it means breath, it means air, and it means spirit all at the same time. Always in motion, covering everything. You think about the air, Think about our atmosphere. It covers the entire world. 
We're swimming in it right now. It doesn't have any borders. It doesn't have any delineations. It just is that completely connecting and covering body. We talk about airspace, right? Now the plane just moved into Russian airspace. Well, they're really we know what that means. It's the air over the borders, but there's no borders in the air. I mean, that, that's just, you know, for, for our own expediency. The air is completely connective. And if you enter the air, you're entering something that is connected to everything, covers everything, and it's always moving. It's always swirling. It's always going someplace. And, and our breath moves in and out. It takes that in and it breathes it back out. And then someone else breathes it in and breathes it back out. Everything is connected in the air. The Hebrew mind saw spirit in exactly the same way. Here is this, this completely connective body that is always moving and, and changing and swirling, and we're breathing in and breathing out, and it's infusing us, giving us life. This is the way the Hebrews thought of spirit. It changes when we think of it that way. And serana, truth, literally means to be strong, to be vigorous, to be in keeping with universal harmony, universal connection. It's that which liberates. Now, how is that related to truth? Isn't it interesting? The, the, what we say truth, and, and that's, a, that's a word that we can translate serara into, but that which is strong, that which is vigorous, that which acts in keeping with universal harmony, that which opens new possibilities, that which liberates, has nothing to do with accuracy. When we think of truth, we think of accuracy. Something has to be accurate if it's true. And if it's true, it's accurate. What the Jews are talking about is nothing of this. Because the Jewish mind doesn't think in terms of form. It thinks in, thinks in terms of function. Very different. The Jews aren't interested in abstract, kind of theoretical truths. What they're interested in is how something functions. They're interested in its effect. Not to put too fine a point on it. How does it affect? If something is true, then it establishes something that is strong, establishes something that is vigorous. It opens new possibilities. It liberates people into new ways of being able to live their life. If it is really true, it does all those things. Do you see the difference? That's why Jesus always says the truth will make you free. Truth does that. And of course, ultimately, truth is a person. Truth is the Father. What more fundamental truth could there possibly be than the person of the Father? And everything about Jesus' way, everything that he's trying to do is to make us one with the Father, one with that truth that will give us the strength and the vigor and open the new possibilities and make us free. This is where Jesus is trying to get us. This is what the language is actually saying. When the people heard these words, that would have been the context within they bring the words spirit and truth. Ruha, serara. Literally, if you think about it, oh, let me go back a minute. It seems so weird for us to think of truth and liberation, truth and setting free as the same word. And am I just going too far with these with these? Uh, you know, root meanings. Take a look now at Luke 4, because in Luke 4, 
This is where Jesus is returning to the Nazareth for the first time and, and preaching in his synagogue. And uh, Luke records that the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This set free those who are oppressed is a translation from the Greek. If you translate it from the Aramaic, it's to set free those who are oppressed with forgiveness. Now that seems like a strange formulation to us. To set free those who are oppressed with forgiveness? Well, guess what? The word that was translated to set free is serara, the same word that is translated as truth in John 4. The Jews used the same word for the same different meanings, to set free or for truth. To them, it's the same exact thing. It's only to our way of thinking that there's something different. And then to set free with forgiveness, subkana, forgiveness, also means, guess what? To liberate or to set free. Because to forgive is to be set free, and to be set free is to be forgiven. To be set free is to be liberated. And to be liberated is to know the truth. These are the connections that make sense in the Jewish mind, and they're just difficult for us to fathom. And so here we have this connection, you know, the same word here. And so we have to see how this relates now. Literally, the truth will set free those who are oppressed by returning them to their original state. If someone is imprisoned, if someone is sick, if someone has found themselves in a debtor's prison, there is an imbalance that has occurred. The truth, the forgiveness, will restore them to their original state and literally set them free. Those of us who have been hit with any kind of trauma, with any kind of loss that has taken us into a different place in life, the truth will literally set us free by returning us to our original state. This is the essence of the gospel. This is the essence of what Jesus is trying to tell us. And so this is where he is leading us when we get this, worshiping in spirit and truth. So let's put it all together. Worship, like consecration we were talking about, is about us. It's not a place and it's not a ritual. It's about us entering into this breath, into this air that covers and connects everything, even while we're at a specific place. So we're here this morning. If we're really worshiping, we are at the same time as we sit here in this specific place, connecting with this covering that covers everything and swirls and moves and blows through everything. This is the... the kind of dual connection that happens in true worship. To bow and surrender, which is a literal translation of the word for worship in Aramaic. To bow and surrender our presence to God's presence and then feel the liberation, feel the freeness that that creates. To understand the new possibilities that are around us. That's worship. Now, this can happen at formal times of worship, like just now when we were playing the music and some of you came up and you were taking uh, communion. Some of you were kneeling down and praying. Beautiful. 
But if it's not at the same time happening everywhere else in our lives, then what are we doing here? If it's not connecting us to all those other moments, opening us up to the new possibilities in our lives around us, that's worship. And we all need to expand our notion of worship. If we can't see this worship occurring in others, how in the world are we ever going to see it in ourselves? There was real worship going on last Sunday in the chaos of all the packing and all the moving and the eating of pizza. It was going on last Sunday. I just sat back and just looked at the room and I I just was kind of transported with a feeling of connection and love for everyone who was there, just watching them do what they were doing. And the sense that this is real worship, the sense that we were all connected, we were all breathing in everything that was connecting all of us at the same time that we were doing whatever task it was that we were doing. How is it real if we don't have this connection, this throughput from our formal times of prayer to our relational times, the prayer and the ritual and the religion feeds the relationship. If it's not doing that, then it's meaningless and it has no point in our lives anymore. We have to see this connection. We can't have one without the other. Faith without works is dead. Use whatever passage you need to to see over and over again this basic truth that the New Testament is trying to bring across to us. Spirit and truth, the best way you can translate it probably is breath and harmony. To breathe in the connection and then to breathe out that which is connective, connecting in harmony with everyone that we're with. Connected to everyone, flowing with everyone, and aware of the flow at the same time. Our shepherd's consciousness, if we have taken time to develop that, is going to guide us here. It's going to help us to go where we need to go. It will guide us to the view that the smallest details are significant. It's the smallest things that really contain the seeds of the sacred. And if we can see them right now, enter them right now, and stop living into the future outcome of whatever peak we're trying to achieve, we will not miss our burning bushes when they occur to us at every moment of our lives. And when we can see the worship that is happening, when you just see Jim standing up on that extension ladder and changing a light bulb, when we can see the worship there, in our ladies when they're decorating, in all the relationships, in a heartfelt conversation between a sponsor and a sponsee, someone doing an authentic fourth step, all the things that are taking place all around us, if we can see that, as the worship, how then much more are we going to see the worship here at these times of prayer and these times of formal celebration? We are perfected in spirit and truth when we can see this worship happening all around us at every step of the way, when we can realize that we are entering into worship every time. When we walk out that door at the end of the service, and we hug the neck of the first person there that we see, and we go and we toast a bagel, and it tastes so great. And you just 
melt into that place. And you realize, God is good. Everything here is because of God. I am breathing in all that God is, everything that is spirit. And I am adding to that connection everything that I do and everything that I am. Then we are transformed. Then we are 40. Yeah? Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for this sacred space. And we thank you for everyone that is here this morning to make it sacred. Thank you for everything that you give us. A morning like this is just marked with so much gratitude for so many things. For all the people that made this happen this morning, who made it possible, who worked so hard, and yet at the same time were glad to do the work, who did it with their presence, saying that there was no place else that they would rather be than right here, right now. Make that the mark of our entire lives, Father. That when we show up someplace, we show up with the attitude that there is no place else that I would rather be, no one else I would rather be with than the person who is right in front of me. And that we can throw ourselves into that breath, into that spirit, and worship you in spirit and truth as we do whatever it is that we do in every moment and detail of our lives. Father, it's so simple. Thanks for making it simple. Help us to get the complication out of the way so we can see the simplicity of what it is that you've given us here so that we can just do it with abandon, throw ourselves in, and love every minute as we enjoy the ride. Thank you for everything that you've given us, for never leaving or forsaking, Father. Never let us forget. We can only love you and each other because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, let's all stand.